Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. Focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally Yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro Yorkhead UK's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and today I'm chatting to Chris Atkins. He's a filmmaker, author and podcaster. He's written a book called A Bit of a Stretch, The Diaries of a Prisoner. He also has a podcast of the same name. He was sentenced to time inside for tax fraud and we're going to be chatting about his time inside and mental health in men's prisons. So my name's Chris Atkins. I am a uh, filmmaker, uh, journalist, uh, now an author, I guess. Um, so I uh, I was making a series of uh, documentaries in sort of mid sort of mid two thousands, in sort of about twenty fifteen, and earlier in that process. So in the mid two thousands, there was a culture in the British film industry of funding films through tax avoidance schemes. Uh, where very, very simply producers like myself would sign up and a group of rich bankers and celebrities and footballers would put lots of money in and they would um, avoid their tax bill and we would get some cash to make the film. HMRC started to kind of clamp down on these and they started restricting a lot of the, uh, the loopholes and in sort of towards the end of 20, uh, 2008, we got involved with a scheme that would just, which was basically dodging loopholes and it would cross that line from tax avoidance into tax evasion. And we still signed up, we still took the money to get a film funded, which we shouldn't have done. And then years and years later, HMRC came and 
prosecuted everyone involved for tax fraud, um, including myself, and I got uh, sentenced to five years. Um, but it sounds worse than it is because you'd only serve half of that. So I was only going to serve two and a half. And I got that was in 2016. And I got sent to Wandsworth Prison. And I didn't I when I when I arrived, uh, one of the officers told me that it was the um, uh, it was the largest prison in the UK. It was the second most overcrowded and it had the highest suicide rate. And that was my uh, that was my little introduction to my new home. Um, and oh God, it's absolutely terrifying because it was a classic old school Victorian um, jail. Um, that hadn't really had much uh, in the way of upkeep to the infrastructure in about 100 years. So it was kind of physically falling apart. And you could, uh, uh, you were just confronted by people. Initially, when I arrived in the induction wing, it was either people who were very mentally ill or uh, addicted to drugs or both. Um, so it was a lot of screaming and smashing of doors and just terrifying, really. Yeah. Um, so that was your first impression. Mm. How did it... How did things Horror. change as it went on? <laughs> um, well, look, like most things in this life, you do get used to things <laughs> rather quickly. Um, so it, it was initially a massive sort of shock to the system because I'd never been to prison before and I didn't really know anything about prisons. And I thought it was all going to be a bit like Porridge or the Shawshank Redemption and it was, it was nothing nothing like either of those um, uh, productions. So... Uh, initially shock and I'd just been convicted as well and you know I'd had to I had a young son at the time I had a, my uh, son Kit who was very close to me um, and so obviously I was wrenched apart from him and, and and so all that you're kind of trying to process all that so you're kind of over you're basically coming out of shock um, is the best way I could describe it um, and going through some quite sort of intense trauma but the, the body and mind is quite good it does kind of protect you and you do just get very very sort of focused on the here and now, like how am I going to eat? How am I going to get out of my cell? Which was a major problem. I mean, I didn't, this was a big shock as well, but I didn't realise that most prisoners, most of the time, are just locked in their cells for 23 hours a day and only left out for a little bit for sort of food and exercise and a shower if you're lucky. And the rest of the time, everyone's just locked in their cells. So getting out of the cell was was this huge kind of mission. So a lot of my kind of attention and focus shifted quite quickly onto Sort of the immediacy and trying to make my life a little a little less unpleasant. How did you make it sort of less unpleasant? Well, I was quite lucky that my first cellmate was a proper old school con, and he was he was like right out of porridge, and he had been in and out of prison his whole life. So he he sort of knew the ropes and knew how to sort of get a little bit ahead from just simple things like how to like make a bin out of a cardboard box and then line it with newspaper so it things don't doesn't don't rot so much. And always throw food down the loo. Never put food in the bin because then it'll rot and stuff. It was just things like if you want to, I had some photos of my son, but I couldn't put them up. I didn't know how to put. Them. Obviously, we're not allowed drawing pins because we might stab ourselves. So he taught me to use toothpaste. Use toothpaste to stick photos on the wall. So it was just little things like that made a made made a big big difference. And then after a while, I realised that if you could get yourself a job, if you could get yourself a job within the prison, as in helping the officers, then that would obviously get you out the cell to do the job. Um, and uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which way you look at it, prisons have had massive budget cuts in, in the last 10 years, uh, and the number of officers has been really slashed. So there just weren't enough officers just to keep the place running. So they actually relied on sort of vaguely trustworthy cons like myself to kind of help them keep keep the place ticking over, just doing basic admin jobs um, around the place. So I started getting out the cell to do 
bits and pieces to the officers. And that kind of grew. So the more work I did for them, the more time I spent out myself. And that had a very real um, advantage initially because it meant I could call home more often. If you're only allowed out for sort of half an hour a day, that's the time you make the phone call. And if, if my son wasn't in, if he was at nursery or he was asleep when I called, then I didn't get to talk to him. So just physically getting out the cell more often meant I was able to speak to my son more often. It also meant I could have a shower and, uh, and sort of very, very basic sort of human things like that. So I, I started making myself as useful as possible to this prison system just to get out and about. And you sort of touched on it earlier when you sort of went in um, that it was a shock. But what are some of the most common misconceptions do you think people have about men's prisons? Well, I think they think that it's full of proper criminals. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the kind of the big flashing sort of misconception that I, I had. You thought that everyone in there was like, you know, an armed robber or getaway driver or safe cracker or, you know, some big time drug kingpin. And they, they were in there. You did meet them every now and then. But most of the time. It was people who were just very mentally ill, who had been through the care system, had been abandoned by the care system and, and just could not function in the outside world. And because there wasn't really any other treatment for them, they would just spiral into low level crime and that low level crime would bring them into prison. And there were people in there who had been to prison dozens and dozens of times. And they clearly had severe mental health problems that weren't getting looked after in the community. And they certainly weren't getting looked after in prison. And if anything, the, the spell in prison was making them worse. So they were on this downward spiral where they were damaging themselves, they were damaging other people, they were damaging the community, and there was no help for them. And the only thing the system was doing was exacerbating their problems. And that was a, a large proportion of the prison population. I mean, that's obviously the crux of why I wanted to chat to you, because mm. this is a mental health podcast, and I really wanted to know what it's like for people in, in prisons in terms of mental health support. So it sounds like mm. you don't feel there is any. Um, can we maybe start off by just discussing... How did you feel that being um, inside affected your own mental health? I do always like to say that I, I, I had it, I don't want to say I had it easy, because then people think, oh, prisons are holiday camps, they're not. But I didn't have it as bad as most people. The reason for that is I didn't have a mental health problem when I went away. Um, I had a very strong support network. So I had family, friends and supporters in like the media who were just trying everything they could to help. And even though they couldn't directly help, they couldn't sort of send me lunch or give me a hug or anything like that. Just the fact that I knew that they were out there on the outside rooting for me was just extraordinarily helpful. And a lot of people in that situation don't, they don't have anyone, they don't have family, they don't have friends, they haven't got anyone supporting them. So that was a real lifeline. And also I knew I wasn't going to be in there that long um, in the sense that I, I, I say I was going to spend two and a half years in custody, but I was only going to spend about six to nine months of that in a prison like Wandsworth. Then after that, I'd qualify for open prison. And then you go to open prison and it's 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 not really like a jail. There's no locks. You can go out and work in the community and so forth. So I knew I was only going to be there for a few months. And I knew that when I got out, there would be people to look after. I'd have, I'd have somewhere to live. I'd see my son again. So for all those reasons, it well, look, it was horrible and I hated it, but it didn't give me a mental health problem. There were, there were really bad nights. There were definitely some dark nights, but... I was also quite fortunate that um, I sort of got in with a group of guys who were quite similar to me. They were all sort of white-collar, middle-class criminals, basically. And, and we sort of all helped each other along. We kind of you know, picked each other up off the floor when we had a bit of bad news or something. So it, it, for, for me, look, I mean, it, the, the worst thing was the separation from my son. That was, I, I, I never got over that. And I still don't get over that. He's still traumatised to this day by sort of that, that level of separation. So, so that was ghastly. Um, and 
the, the, the only thing that really did cause me prob- real problems was when I, I'll come, I was going to come on to this in a minute, but um, I actually volunteered as a, as, as a listener within the prison. Now, listeners are sort of trusted inmates who are trained by the Samaritans to help other inmates who are suicidal or self-harming. And I really wanted to do that. I thought it would be very fascinating. I mean, I'm a journalist. I thought this is going to be you know, great, very interesting for, for me and my story about the prison. Um, I thought it'd be good to, to do something productive and worthwhile while I was inside and, you know, give something back. And, and also listeners had had a slightly easier life. They had more perks, they had bigger cells and so forth. So I, I signed up for that. I qualified. And then I did about six months volunteering as a listener. And that really affected me because then I was seeing seeing people who were suicidal. I saw people who I thought were probably going to kill themselves the next day. I saw people who, who had and were self-harming. And there's a lot of self-harm. Um, and I saw people in psychotic episodes and people who'd just been stabbed and all the rest of it. So I saw people at their most traumatised and that inevitably had some kind of impact on me as well. It really sounds like there's a lot to be done in terms of improving the support for people, especially mm. people with long-term mental health issues like schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, it's a big question, but what do you think should be done? Um, well, don't don't treat them as criminals. You know, treat, treat them as sick people. I mean you know, that's not a, a massive sort of idea for people to get their head around. The, the, the problem was is they, they would commit low-level crime and then they go into prison and they couldn't cope with the prison system either. So they would just start kicking their doors and screaming. And the officers would say, oh, stop kicking your doors and screaming or we'll put you in the seg, which is the segregation block. So they'd kick their door and they'd scream, so they get put in the seg. So they were punished for being unwell. That's, that's how our system operates. And then the, the system then scratches its head and wonders why they're not getting any better. I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious. I mean, there, there were, I, I never saw him, but there was a boy, um, and they do this to children. I mean, they do this to children all the time because they now send kids to, to adult prisons because it's cheaper. Um, so you'd see 18, 19 year olds who were in a fearful state. Uh, and there was one boy who was 18. He was arrested for stealing sweets. His name was Osvaldas Pagiris. And he, uh, he was arrested for stealing sweets. And they found him with a noose five times while he was in Wandsworth. And he was, he, he, he was diagnosed with severe mental illness. They knew he was mentally ill. So he was found with a noose. So what did they do is they sent him to the punishment block. They punished him for having a noose. And the mental health nurse did an assessment and said he was fine, but she didn't have an interpreter present. So she didn't actually get to hear him say anything in his own language. He didn't speak any English. So she said, oh, he's fine. And, uh, and, he, and he was dead the next day. He'd, he'd, he'd hung himself. Um, uh, so things like that do happen a, a terrifying amount. There's, there's a, a, an article in today's paper, I just tweeted actually, about something very, very similar in a, in a, in a prison in the north, where again, it's another 18-year-old, again, put in the segregation block, again, clearly suicidal, but not checked, not given a proper diagnosis, not given his meds, and then he, then he hangs himself. So that's happening on a regular basis in British prisons. Oh, dear. Sorry, it's quite interesting. Some of my books quite fun. I, I mean, it just, it just sounds... <laughs> awful and yeah. i mean what is do you, i mean what do you think can be done i mean is the answer sort of more money when we've yeah. spoken to sort of other people we spoke to a lady who talked about women's prisons she'd been to a women's prison she told us what it was like there and it really sounds like it, it is massively underfunded and also that this people just don't care about the institutions at all what are your thoughts on yeah on i mean it, it, it's 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 two things. I mean, it's, it's the funding, obviously, but it's also a kind of an, a societal attitude and all the change that Britain has this weird, like sadistic um, approach to criminal justice and crime and criminals. That the second someone even sounds like they might have done something wrong, they basically deserve everything they get. Mm-hmm. Exceptionally 
kind of blinkered judgmental approach, especially when you look at the fact that 10, I think it's 10, 15 percent of people in British prisons are innocent. In a sense, they're on remand. So they've been charged, but they haven't been convicted. And that's actually they're, they're the highest risk group for suicide because they um, they don't know their fate. So people on remand are more likely to kill themselves, even though they're they're innocent. And that's been made a lot worse during the pandemic because the amount of time people have to wait for trial has just been has gone through the roof because of all the courts and everything has slowed down. So there's there's an attitudinal change that people need to look at prisoners in a less judgmental way and look at them as human beings who have made a mistake or are ill or both and often need help, as well as there being some element, punitive element to the crimes they've committed. There also needs to be a restorative, rehabilitative element. If, if nothing else, then stop them doing it again. I mean, that's the problem is we, we, we take these damaged individuals, we damage them even more, and they walk straight out the gate and commit more crime, which just creates a whole new set of victims. And that's why, you know, Britain has the highest reoffending rates in Europe. So over 50% of people in a certain set and younger prisoners commit crimes within a year of release. It's, it's astonishingly ineffective as, 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 as a rehabilitative system. So that is to, it's, a, it's, it's an attitudinal change amongst the public to say, look, we need a different and more progressive and more intelligent approach to, re, to how we treat people who've done something wrong, rather than inflict as much damage and pain on them as we possibly can so that we all feel better about ourselves. And that's the shift. And I think if that shift happens, that's going to allow, give politicians the breathing space to say, right, we're now going to spend more money or we're going to spend the money we have in more intelligent ways. So we're not going to, it's not all about scanners and sniffer dogs and barbed wire. And it's more about mental health treatment and uh, more mental health nurses and better training for officers. Like officers, the, the, the training takes nine weeks. I mean, I, I someone said, like, I think dog walkers need more training than this. I mean, it's astonishing the, how quickly you can go from being a normal person and being allowed to be a prison officer. So the prison officers aren't properly trained and they're, they're not paid very much and, uh, uh, it, and there aren't enough mental health people working on the wing. So that just means that all these people are just, they're basically locked in cells, shouted at until they kill themselves. That's, that's how we're treating these very damaged individuals. And from what I can gather as well, um, during lockdown, it was even worse, wasn't it, in terms of the amount of time people could have out? out of oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically every, everyone went on 23-hour lockdown. So, so it, it, the, 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 the lucky ones who, who, I, who I kind of counted as, um, even people like me weren't allowed out of their cells and people were just locked up for 23. One guy was saying, I've just spoken to a guy who's just got out and he said he was on 23-hour bang-up, but it was every other day. So he'd do 23-hour bang-up, and then he'd do 24 hours, then 23, then 24 hours. So he'd go for literally 48 hours without ever leaving his cell. I mean, we've already talked a lot about the mental health stuff. Um, what are the biggest challenges that inmates face um, other than mental health issues? Well, I mean, the, it's, it's, it's sort of access to anything to, that's going to help them change. Um, so uh, uh, there's tons of evidence that shows that if, if prisoners can access education, they're less likely to reoffend. Um, and they uh, obviously everyone knows the benefits of education. That's why education is compulsory for children. Lots of these guys left school around 14, 15 or younger, or they were excluded from school and went to pupil referral units, which are basically hotbeds for gang activity. Um, so they just didn't get an education. 50% of prisoners are functionally illiterate. So if you can take people when they come in, identify their needs, which isn't hard, you know, you ask them to do a maths test and they, you know, they're innumerate, um, 
And it's not because they're stupid. They're very, very smart, a lot of them, but they just haven't had that kind of education. And then they say, right, you've got a three-year sentence, which means you're going to be in here a year and a half, and we're going to put you on this course so that by the end of it, you can read, write, you're going to have two GCSEs, um, uh, and you're going to have two qualifications in computing and IT. So when you get out, you can get a paid job, which means you don't have to go back to crime. And, and if you can do things like that, it, 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 the, the reoffending rates plummet. And prisoners want to do it as well, because they'd rather do that than be locked in their cells all day. So it's, it, if you can sort of facilitate those kind of schemes and courses and ideas, which are all there, they're all available. It's just there aren't offices to unlock the prisoners to get to the courses. Then you're going to suddenly see a huge radical shift. The, the problem people have is that I was in Wandsworth and I was one of the lucky ones. I, I actually got a job at the education department. So I'd go and hang out there and chat to the women there and do their filing and drink tea. But there was all these empty classrooms. And there'd be a teacher who turned up every day and sat in an empty classroom. And there'd be all these prisoners on the wing. You could see the wing. They're all locked in their cells all day. And they were desperate to get out and come to the classrooms. But there weren't the officers to unlock them, to bring them across. So the taxpayer is paying for teachers to sit in empty classrooms. And I'm, I'm sure that's still happening now. Probably got worse now in the pandemic. That doesn't make any sense at all. No. And that's a staffing issue or a funding issue? or Both. I mean, it, it, it's weird. They're paying for the education. They're paying for the teacher. But they're not, there aren't the officers to unlock them, to bring them over. Because the teachers can't unlock the cells. You need an officer to unlock the cells. And there weren't the officers. Really quick, when you said about the... Um the attitude that people have towards prisoners in terms of that it should be all about punishment because as far as I can understand prison is meant to be about re rehabilitation and sort of breaking that cycle so that people can go on and sort of be productive afterwards but exactly. it really doesn't sound like that's happening at all and it really sounds no. like it's more um, playing into the idea that's, that other people have around you know that prison is a punishment and should be absolutely terrible and then yes almost destroy you and it really does sound yeah. like it is destroying a lot of people oh it really does it really does but destroyed people they walk out and all they can do is commit more crime uh, it's and it's so bizarre that you can't people cannot see past that very simple cause and effect which is just so evidentially solid you know it's like you know let, letting walking someone out of the hospital without curing them and they've got a disease and they give the disease to someone else it's that it's, it's that obvious um and it's only the British that do it. Like the Norwegian, the reoffending rate in Norway is like 20% because they do rehabilitate people. In Britain, we just have this ab 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 abhorrent net. It's, it's all, anything that is seen as rehabilitative is conflated with being soft on crime and therefore is, is seen as beyond the pale. I've got a few quite big questions now um, sure. to finish up with. I suppose the first one I'd like to ask you is, what would you say to anyone um, who is about to go into prison in terms of what they can do to prepare if there is anything they can do to prepare i mean if it's if it's if it's someone's first time i know this i know this sounds odd but it's it's not as bad as you think it's going to be so if i had to go back to prison now i i mean i trust me i don't i'm not going i'm not doing anything i don't even speed now but if i had to go back i would just shrug and go okay let's just get it over and done with i wouldn't be terrified which is what i was when i, when I first went in because it actually isn't if there is, prisons are very violent places, but the violence is all very kind of targeted. So I, I, I was never attacked and I was very rarely threatened. And that's because people were hitting each other for a reason, that they, they'd borrowed some drugs they couldn't pay back. There was a, a lot of the uh, violence is gang led. So there'd be gangs who are, have a war on the outside, especially in London with all the postcode gangs. And they go into prison and the, and the fights carry on in prison. 
But if you're not part of a postcode gang and you're not borrowing drugs off anyone and you're not trying to get in on anyone's tobacco racket, just want to stay in the corner and do your time. You can mostly do that. So it's not that dangerous a place if you just keep your head down. Um, and I'd say just find something to do. So I got very busy. I did lots of jobs. I, I did a degree. I did an open university degree while I was inside uh, in psychology. I mean, um, and I wrote a book and I wrote tons of letters and read loads of books. So I, I just kept myself extraordinarily busy. And then the time actually flew very quickly. So my time in Wandsworth after a while was going very, very fast because I was so I made myself so busy that the, the hours just flew by. And it was a very entertaining place. I mean, prisons are very funny. That, that's the other, it probably hasn't come across from everything I've said so far, because it's all been about teenage suicides. But it, it, that aside, prisons are very darkly funny places. I was laughing more in my time in Wandsworth than at any other point in my life, because it's so, they're so badly run, they're so dysfunctional. It's like faulty towers on a daily basis. It's like dystopian faulty towns, the best way I can describe it. And if you if you if you have a dark sense of humour, which I do, I found it all very funny. So I did just I did laugh a lot at how badly the place was was functioning. What about um, thoughts that you'd share with anyone who has recently left prison? Um, and yeah, and what was it like for you coming out? Coming out was quite hard actually. The the because I was at open prison for my last. I did nine months in Wandsworth, so you know, it wasn't that long. And then I did nine, and then I did 21 months at open prison. So I was at open prison much longer, but my book is all about Wandsworth because that's where all the drama was. Open prisons are boring in comparison. So, and then, and then as I kind of progressed through open prison, I started going out. I was going out every day to study. I went and spent 12 hours a day at the local university in their library reading psychology textbooks. So I wasn't in prison for most of the time. And then after a while, I was allowed to go uh, and see my son. I was going on day trips. I was allowed to go on overnight trips. So towards the end of my sentence, because I was very sort of well behaved and I was seen as quite low risk, I was going out and I spent most of my waking hours outside the prison. So that wasn't weird. But by the time my sentence stopped, it wasn't like I suddenly walked out and was scared of traffic or something like that because I was so used to that. But the shift once I actually got out, it was very mundane things like how am I going to pay the gas bill and have I got any towels? And it was just stuff like that. That's stuff I hadn't had to think about because everything in prison is just the same and you're, everything's sort of taken care of. Every day is the same. The routine is set. And then suddenly that routine was completely shaken up. And suddenly I had to look after my son again. And as I said, I had to pay him rent. And it was just like, oh, you know. <laughs> so that was a real sort of head spin. And I didn't really, sort of in, in, emotionally and psychologically, I didn't really like kind of socializing i still don't really i don't like large groups of people i don't like going out to sort of parties and events and i used to love all that i used to be life and soul of the party and now i don't you know i go on like meals and dates and meet my friends one-on-one -on -one, but i don't like going to a party with 50 people there that really freaks me out Would, i mean is it fair to say you sort of initially maybe became kind of institutionalized and if so that isn't quite that is quite interesting yeah we're there for a fairly short amount of time yeah institutionalized is a word that i don't it doesn't have any real meaning to me and it it doesn't i mean also in psychology it's it's it's, it's sort of banded it's sort of banded around i think unjustifiably i think what you do is you adapt so i i adapted to wandsworth very very well after a while you know it was just a, it was just normal to me and all the, the functioning, the things that I had that would keep me going in the outside world, I got rid of because actually having them inside is a real disadvantage. So I'll give you examples. 
you know, I work in media, okay, so I'm really impatient. Like everything has to be done now or yesterday. And that's the only way to get films made is by just demanding everything now. And then maybe one day you'll get the film finished. Mm. You know, I was always working to deadlines and everything has to be done very, very quickly. Now, that, that meant I excelled in the media world. My impatience kind of helps. But once you get in prison, that impatience will literally kill you. <laughs> so you have to get rid of things like that and just let your whole system slow down to adapt to a very, very, very slow environment. Like nothing happens when it's supposed to. Everything takes forever. So you've got to lose the things about you that are going to harm you and you pick up sort of senses. So I could, I could know what time it was by the keys. When people would open gates, I would know when, what time it was in the day. And I could hear, if I could hear an officer shouting on a wing, I knew who was going to be on duty on our wing later. So tiny things like that, you, you get very attuned to your environment and you sort of cut off the things that are going to sort of be really counterproductive. And it just means that when you shift back into the real world, knowing what officers on duty isn't going to do you any good. And actually, you need to speed up. If I want to get ahead in my business and my work, again, I need to start being a bit more impatient, basically. So you've got to redevelop the things that help in the world. So it's just it's about adaptability rather than institutionalized. Because I think when people say institutionalized, they think, oh, they've become some slowed down idiots. And it's, it's no, they haven't. They've just adapted to that particular environment to, to, to survive. I mean, I could chat about this all day because it's so interesting and I really appreciate you, you taking the time, but I'm afraid this is my final question. Um, and it's about really friends and family um, and mm. people who are inside. Um, what advice would you give to them in terms of supporting um, yeah, a friend or family member who is in prison? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because there's all these things that you want to do and they don't let you do them. So you want to send food and hug them and you know be there for and you can't and you think you're you're not helping but I used to come back to my cell and I would have a wedge of mail on my bed so they wouldn't deliver mail for ages and it would all build up and I think everyone had forgotten me and then they'd just give me like a week's worth in one go and at the start I had people loads of people writing to me and I'd come and it was like three inches thick this bundle of letters and you can email prisoners now. It's called emailaprisoner.com. It costs a few quid, but um, no, it costs like 50p a time. Um, and you email the system and they print out the email. They stick it under their door and it's, it's reasonably efficient. So I'd, I'd have all these letters and it was just all people go, oh, my God, how are you? I'm so sorry. Oh, my God, are you OK? Tell me what's going on. And da, da, da. And everyone would start the letter by going, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Sorry, I haven't written. I don't know what to say. But it didn't matter. Just the very fact that I had that piece of paper and it was from them. And I knew they'd taken the time to write to me. It was just a huge difference. It literally would change my whole day. I, I was thrilled to bits when I saw those bundles. So just staying in touch and just sending them the odd email, sending them a letter. If they see something funny in the paper, you see a cartoon, print it out, stick it, post it in. Get your kids to do drawings. That's what always used to break my heart. And I do for my friends who are still inside or for my friends who have gone back inside. When it's their birthdays, I get my, my son to do you know, like an eight-year-old's drawing that isn't exactly, it's not a Monet, is it? But it's just my son going, oh, happy birthday. And, and it, they always say it breaks their heart to see a little, you know, drawing by a kid who doesn't, they've never met. But it just, it, things like that make a huge, even though you don't think they're made, it's quite easy for us to do these things. But for the person on the inside, just to, just to know that people care about you and just to remind you who you are. You forget who you are inside sometimes because everything's the same. Everything's great. You're given a name, a surname and a number. You just forget your inner self. So all this stuff, it just reminds you of all that and just says, look, there are people on the outside who are gunning for you. We don't all think you're a bastard. 
Um, so just, just, just lots of stuff like that. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours, mentally yours, mentally yours. Mentally yours. by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116 123. You can also find them at samaritans.org. If you'd like more information about the Hub of Hope, you can find them online. They're at hubofhope.co.uk. You can also download the Hub of Hope app from the App Store. If you'd like to find out more about Mentally Yours, you can find us on Twitter. We're at MentallyYRS. And we also have a lovely Facebook group, which is just called Mentally Yours. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.